I'm very excited about our text. So I want to go to the Lord right quick in prayer and jump in. Pray with me, would you please? Father, I want to thank you for the beauty of these 46 verses. As we see David pass off the scene and we watch Solomon now take his stead. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us to learn the way we should. With hearts quick to take everything you offer us in faith. Minds that are available to you, Lord, for the fixing and plotting and planning that is your will. You've told us that mind has not conceived nor enters into the, entered into the heart of man the things you have prepared for those who love you. And yet our heart is to better understand the height and the width and the depth and the breadth of your love which surpasses knowledge. So Lord, let us grasp what it is we're supposed to grasp in this text, we pray. You've told us to give ourselves over to reading and exhortation and doctrine. Now we seek, Lord, to be exhorted and taught as you desire. Have your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Lord, let us be captivated in your word. Let us have so much fun in your word. And let tonight just be a night we are so glad we came. In Jesus, in your name. Amen. When say tonight, I said, would any please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true because I say so. You know, by this point you're here and you're used to hearing it. But how much of our life is really, truly weighed out by the word of God? Now that you've read through the text, you know that twice, hopefully you haven't missed it, twice there has been this phrase. We read in verse 12, Then Solomon sat at the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. The last verse, verse 46, And the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Yehoiada, that's how you say that crazy name, and he went out and struck him and he died. Thus the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Somewhere in between 12 and 46, where it was firmly established and established in the hand of Solomon, we have these pretty radical and heavy situations taking place, specifically that of Adonia, Abiathar, Joab, Yoav, and Shimei. It's a bit of house cleaning, and we're well aware of that. Now, I don't... Go, oh, I try not to go overly grammatical because, you know, I could lose people quickly. But I want to point out something as we kind of get into this. And that is in verse 12, when Solomon, we read then, that Solomon sat on the throne of his father David and his kingdom was firmly established. The verb established is in what is called the Nifil imperfect. Nifil just means it's passive. It happened to him. But then it's imperfect. Now, it's important to note there are really only two verb tenses for Hebrew for the most part. It's either done or it isn't. Uh, we can look at it from a past or a present or future. That's how we kind of look at things linearly as a Western world. But for them, it was just done or it's not. It's either done, completed, or it's not. And the, sort of, the reason I say that is, is it's either perfect or imperfect. The first time in verse 12, what we read is that his kingdom was established. It was knife-filled, passive, 
imperfect. In other words, it was established, and we might even say it was being established or was continuing to be, or however, but the point was is that it wasn't done completely. By the time we get to verse 46, at the end of the chapter, we read that the king commanded Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and went out and struck him and died, and the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. And I feel again, but then it is perfect. Somewhere in between it not being complete and it being complete are those verses between 12 and 46. And that tells me something as I want God's kingdom established in my own life. As I want to make sure that my entire life is established with him. Set, laid out in proper foundation and built by those precious things of gold, silver and precious stones versus the hay, wood and stubble that doesn't serve out the fire. So in the first 11 verses, we say goodbye to David. And then from verse 12 to verse 46, we see in essence the partial establishing or the imperfect establishing to the perfect establishing of Solomon's throne. In verse 1, we read that David drew near that he should die and he charged Solomon his son saying, I go the way of all the earth. As David begins this chapter, in the end chapter of his life, if you will, he makes clear to us that there is a part of him that is going to go back to the earth from whence it came. That takes us all the way back to Genesis 2-7, where the Lord formed Adam out of the dust of the ground. And we read in 3:19, as God then pronounces judgment, he says, for dust you are and dust you shall return. And it is important to note that all the things of this world that you can see, touch, hear, and feel are temporary. And you say, well, what about each other? The shell that we see of each other is temporary. However, there's a part that lives inside of us. We're not a person with a soul. We're a soul with a body. And that body will be cashed in. It's interesting because he's not the first person to say this. Joshua says this at the end of his life. And the speech we're familiar with in Joshua 23 and 24, where ultimately he will say, judge for yourselves whom you will serve as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he tells us in 23:14, behold, I am going all the way of all the earth. I am going the way of all the earth. It is important to recognize, according to Hebrews 9.27, and again, I'm laying out doctrine here, that it is appointed unto men to die once, but then after that, judgment. That is fundamental. In other words, you don't get a second chance. There's no reincarnation, nothing of that sort. And maybe next time, if you weren't so nice here, you come back as a bug or something, you know, something like that. But, and then maybe if you're nice, you could be maybe, I don't know, a rock star the next time around. What it tells us is, is you've got one appointment and this is your one life. Live it well. It says in Psalm 89, 48, what can a man live or what can man live and not see death? What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his own life from the power of the grave? Psalm 39, 4 says, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am? David would cry out, remind me that I really am mortal, that I may recognize that I am not the man and that I'm not all that. You are all that. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 90 verse 12, it says, teach us to number our days so that we would gain a heart of wisdom. One of the things that becomes really clear is that God, when we surrender to him, our eyes are lifted above the overcast of the temporary and we see eternity for the first time. 
And that is fundamental. And the last time we saw this kind of handoff from David to Solomon, the last time we saw this kind of public handoff, if you think about it, was Moses to Joshua. I mean, when Saul took the, the, the throne, if you will, he wasn't taking it from another person per se, but from God. But there was no big inauguration where the sort of the handing off from one to the other. When Saul abrogated the throne, well, he could only do so through death. And then David would take over the throne. There was no big transfer inauguration ceremony. Saul was dead. This was our big moment. And the last time again, interesting because the message that Moses spoke to Joshua is very similar from the message that David speaks to his son Solomon. When Moses passes the mantle, if you will, in Deuteronomy 31.4, his main primary message is be strong and of good courage. The man who was a soldier and a spy, the man who didn't have a problem, when we see him, he's introduced at the Valley of Raphaim when the Amalekites attack Israel after they've been led out of Egypt. And yet in all of that, he's fearful to take the mantle from, from uh, Moses. Not just in Deuteronomy 31, 6, but we'll see it in Joshua 1, 6 and 1, 7. The people then will say, Joshua, be strong. And then God will say, Joshua, be strong and of good courage. And I ask myself, am I ready to die? I mean, if I were to face, now look at I can tell you this. The one thing that separates us from every other person on the planet is our fear or not, or should be our lack of fear of death. Now, dying is different from death. We're aware of that, right? Dying usually means that's the process to get there. Not excited about that because I've experienced pain in my life and I kind of figured dying would probably be more painful than anything I've experienced because I've made it out of those situations. But it does say that in Hebrews 2.14, inasmuch that is the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now look at the reason why we don't have to fear death is because we already have life dwelling in us the moment we said yes to Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, if you believe in me, you'll never really die. Not in the part, important part. They have that shell, that body part, uh, that part that you're sort of the tent, that part will get cashed in. But the soul will never have to spend eternity away from me. As a matter of fact, you can start now spending time with me. And I love that. And now, the reason is it's not based on our works or our efforts or our will or our strength or our discipline or our brilliance. It really is all about the grace of God. He's given it to us out of kindness. And as long as he's stays kind, we stay blessed. And the good news is he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So David starts this, and I I won't build it all like this, but I need to start by saying David is well aware of the fact that eternity is staring him in the face, and the temporary of the moment is passing off the scene. It says in 1 John chapter 3 that the, the things of this world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life are not of man, I'm sorry, not of God, but of this world. And the world and its lust thereof are passing away, but he who does the will of God lasts forever. Everything we see around us, these tables, these chairs, the guitars, the building, all of this stuff that people have spent so hard their whole life chasing after, the new iPhone or the new Samsung so they can see another quarter of an inch on each side or whatever it is, in the end of it all, it's all going to burn. But David now turns to his son that he has now made sure will take the throne from him. And he looks at him and he says, boy... Notice the challenge. Be strong. Just like Moses said to Joshua, be strong. Chazak. It, it, it means more than just physically powerful. 
Strength, first and foremost, is of a conviction and commitment. And that's important when you're looking at someone like Joshua, someone that you've just been, you know, I mean, Moses spends 30 years walking in the wilderness after waiting 40 years in the wilderness being a shepherd. Uh, and then before that, another 40 years that he spent, in essence, in prep, though we may not have known it. Uh, yet in all of that, he looks at one huge mistake of misrepresentation between him and God. And Moses isn't taking him into the promised land. But he looks at Joshua and says, you are. You get to do what I dreamt of doing. Interesting, as David does the same thing with Solomon in regards to the temple. Moses looked and said, you know, the one thing I wanted was just to go into the promised land. And you get to do it. Be firm in your commitment. Be strong in your, com- in your conviction. Don't just be somebody that's going to be swayed and influenced by the world around you because the world around you has declared war on God. You cannot succumb to that. So be strong. Be committed. Be of a man of great conviction and prove yourself a man. Or literally, David says, man up. Boy, and Solomon by this point is at best his late teens. And he's looking at a teenager I remind you, he has older brothers, including Abia. And he looks and he says, people are going to look at you and they're going to think you're a boy. Your chronological age declares you a boy. So prove them wrong. Show them what a man does. You know, Paul will say the same thing to Timothy when he's about to pass the mantle, when he says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set an example. He also says that you need to be a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Be an example of speech, love, faith. Let them see what it really looks like to be a man. I find it interesting. There are different words for man. Adam, Adam is the key word for just man as in mankind, if you will. But the word man, that would mean sort of, if you will, a male is the word ish. Like your man ish. And ish is the word used here. Don't prove yourself human here. Prove yourself a man. And I find it interesting. The world has gone full frontal assault on gender assignment. You're aware of that. What does it really mean to be a man? Scripturally, there's a very defined role for a man. And it's, by the way, one that most men aren't willing to take. It is not just one of leadership. It is one of responsibility. He goes, you know what it'll look like to be a man? Let me tell you. You need to shamar. I'm not making it up. It's what it says. The word here in verse 3 is keep. Do you see it there? Keep is the word shemar, and shemar means to guard. It doesn't just mean do. We'll see that here in a moment to do, but it means to protect. Now, there's two different ways to protect. You protect something from escaping or you protect from invasion. It's what direction when you're standing at the door. If you're protecting from escaping, what that means is there's something you want and you don't want it leaving you. If you protect it from invasion, that means there's something that's precious you don't want something else at. It's the same word, by the way, we read in the book of Genesis when God put Adam in the garden to protect and to keep it. Or to, if you will, to work it and to keep it. The word is guard, shamar. Avad and Shemar in Genesis. 
So because you want to be a man, you want to show the world what a man is like. Guard, not just the Lord, because the Lord doesn't need protecting. Guard the charge of the Lord. Now, please hear me. God has put a call on your life, each one of you, unique to you. Your calling will be a collection, a recipe of the various gifts that God has given you spiritually. The various ways that you will demonstrate those gifts. As 1 Corinthians 12 makes clear, there are different gifts with different workings with different results. He's given you a litany of gifts to be exercised in a way that's bespoke to you for results that will bear forth impact to eternity. And he's made you unique. The things that prick your heart, that inspire you, the things that you see when you walk in a room may be rashly different than many of us or all of us. And he's also placed burdens. Not burdens like heavy things, because you know his yoke is easy and his burden is light, but I'd like you to consider. He's placed within us desires to exercise those gifts in specific arenas or areas, people groups. For some, they have a burden for India or Africa. For some, they have a burden for Soho. For some, they have a burden for the elderly. For some, they have a burden for children. Some, they have a burden for rape victims or those who have experienced human trafficking. Those burdens are simply fires lit within you to motivate you to exercise the gifts that you've been given in a specific arena. Now, those, by the way, for what it's worth, again, please don't just believe me. You've heard my spiel on that. You know that. But, but consider that those burdens may not last forever. There are times where you may have a specific burden for a specific people group. Now, I'm not talking about you're single and you're a guy and you have a burden for a women's ministry. I'm not talking about that. That's a different kind of burden and that's not spiritual. But I'm talking about that burden where you realize it's like right now, I don't even know if I could just, I'm, there's, I'm so driven. There is a restlessness or a fire lit in me. I just got to get, and whatever. It's like if you're an evangelist, you got the lost, man, and it's a specific group of the lost. Now, what if you don't feel a burden right now? What if you're like, I'm, I'm not in a place. Well, maybe what the Lord is doing, and might I say, if you're not in practice, you're in prep. But let me warn you, whatever the charge that God has placed in your life, whatever calling he has placed in your life, guard it. Guard it from what? Well, if the first time we saw it was guarding in the garden, you guard it from the invasion of that which will lie to you about God's calling to lie to you about who God is, to lie to you about the kind of personality he has, to lie to you about your responsibility to that calling. And so what will happen is the lie looks a lot like a compromise on one side and condemnation once you do it. The lie says, I know that you were full on before. You love the word and you expected God to speak, but you need more philosophy. You need more other people's books. You need, now look, there's nothing wrong with reading another person's book, but it's not the Bible and it never will be. And then if you're quicker to quote someone else than someone in scripture, I'd be a little concerned about how you're able to test. But David looks at his son 
And he says, you need to protect that charge because men protect their calling. And I kind of get in the feeling we're not going to get 12 to 46 tonight. That may be next week. Because I really believe that the Lord is calling us to really take seriously what he's telling us in these verses. This is an exhortation. Man up. Or Deborah, woman up. Man up by first. Take seriously the call he's placed on your life. Take it seriously. And if you're not in a place where you're like, God, I'm so driven, well then, Lord, let me be so available that even in this time you are dumping into me, you are investing into me, you are equipping me, you are challenging me, or you are strengthening me for the next time you send me out to whatever that is. And what you'll find is most of your ministry may happen supernaturally, naturally. It will happen without it being on your diary. It'll happen simply because you're available and God said, I wanted to use you. And David looks and he says, commit. By the way, that be strong. What we're going to find is that's the tragedy of Solomon. Forgive me for the spoiler alert. Solomon's heart does not fully follow God like David did. That doesn't mean David never sinned. David clearly sinned. It was written all over scripture. But David never swapped gods. In the end of it all, David was committed to God, even in his weakness, even in his foolishness, even in his nonsense. He was not going to swap gods and all of that. But David looks at his boy and he says, commit, commit and man up. I don't care how young you are. Commit. I don't care if nobody else around you looks like they're committing. Commit. I don't care if what contemporary Christianity looks like is something entitled, covered in beard wax and uh, you know, and tattoos and somewhere in all of that. You just never feel like you're own up to that. Well, commit to the Christianity that Jesus is, not just some culture around you that chances are is more a jogging club when Christ called you to be an Olympic runner. And he says, look at man up, man up. And start that by guarding the charge of the Lord your God. Notice he doesn't say the charge of the Lord God. There's a fundamental word in between, and that is your God. It's not like you're bellying up to some great business called heaven or the kingdom, and you're just some you know, number amidst other numbers to go and kind of collect your, grab your time card and just do whatever the mission is for the day. This Lord is your God. And because it's your God, because he is your God, he has a charge that's uniquely yours and nobody else can do it the way you do it. And once you're committed to charge that, to guard that charge, then walk, walk in his ways which tells us that sitting and doing nothing is not obedience unless God tells you to be still. There are many times what we're going to find is that greatest ministry just happens while you're walking with him. And then he says, keep, and that's that same word. Do you guys remember the word for keep? What is it? Yeah, I kind of figured you'd be in trouble if you couldn't remember that one. Shemar, guard his statutes. 
and guard his commandments and guard his judgments and guard his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses. You know, it's a very simple way to put all of that in one simple thing. Guard the word of God. Guard it. Guard it from what? It's not escaping. No, it's being invaded. And it's being invaded by nonsense. Nonsense that says our culture has declared war and said this is no longer relevant and will only take it if you chisel out the parts that somehow are inoffensive. Well, how much of the Bible do you have left? A bunch of promises that were not reticent on some form of, you know, pretense first? So we get our little things that say, like, the Lord will direct your paths. But it doesn't have anywhere where it says, you know, submit yourself to the Lord. Or to lean not upon your own understanding, but in all your ways, follow him. Just let him direct your path. That'll be nice. Or the peace of God will surpass, that surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. Well, wait a minute. Philippians 4 makes clear that is the result of something. It's like all of us showing up to cash in paychecks, but we aren't working. Guard the word. Guard the word from laziness. Because laziness says, yeah, I can become a theologian so that my head is clogged full of this information, but my feet don't know any of it. So I can argue with somebody on my couch while I'm doing nothing. I can prove my doctrine right. But remind you, that it started, if we're going to keep the charge, we've got to walk. And as we walk, we guard the word. We guard it, dare I say, from YouTube and from other, other likely sources where is, that's, there's always going to be somebody that has something that says, I know the Bible looks like it says it this way, but it really means the opposite because I decided so because I want to do what the Bible tells me not to, or I don't want to do what the Bible tells me to. So here's my way of wrangling it through the washing machine, twisting it and torturing enough so I could finally get it to confess what I wanted to confess. And you watch people do this all the time. And if we have a heart to sin, somehow we think our conscience could be appeased if we could find some nutter on, the, on YouTube or somewhere else that kind of goes, oh, well, look at that guy agrees with me. It must be okay. What well, the devil will agree with you too on that sin if you're looking for someone. And David's looking at his boys and he says, at this one, his boy, and he says, commit, boy, commit and man up. And I want you to do that by guarding the charge God has given you. Now, he's called to be authority over the entire nation, I remind you. This boy is stepping up. He can't. He can barely get his driver's license. He's not old enough to vote in most countries. And yet in all of that, he's actually couldn't even vote for himself, if you will. But he's going to go and sit on the throne. And he says, man up, boy, because no boy should be sitting on this throne. And you have great responsibility. And we know from every Spider-Man there is that for great responsibility. How does that go? With great, great power. Thank you. I knew you. There you go. Thanks, Mark. With great power comes great responsibility. And you have great power given to you. And if you're going to guard your charge, you must walk. And as you walk, guard his word. That's his statutes. That's his commandments. 
That's his judgments. That's his testimonies, not just his promises and the things you think you can bank on. The things that God says, that's a boundary. Don't go past that. I've already passed judgment, passed judgment on that thing, and it's time for us to walk away from it. Flee youthful lust. Sex before marriage is still fornication. Sex between anyone other than a man and a woman in marriage is considered sexual sin. Whether that's pornography or whether that's for hire or whether that's, well, we said we're in love. If you're in love, then marry each other. Put a ring on it. And if God said it's wrong, it's still wrong and he's never changing his mind. And let all man be a liar and God be true is what scripture says. And David's first point is, boy, if you're going to be a man, obey God. Guard and walk and guard. Now, here's the good news. Look at the rest of verse 3 and verse 4. That... Now, you know what that means, right? If you're willing to do that, here's the promise that comes with it. That you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, whatever you do and wherever you go, if you're willing to guard the charge, if you're willing to walk in His ways, if you're willing to keep and guard His Word, God wants to prosper you. Now, if you think the best prosperity God's got to offer you is a big bankroll, you are selling God short. We're aware of that. I remind you, this whole thing's about thinking from an eternal perspective. Now, that doesn't mean God's going to want every human being broke and you know we're all going to be sort of selling big issues, but somehow in all of that. The bottom line is everything that people want in money, we have without the money, whether we have it or not. The peace and the power and the joy and the love, the things that people think that if I can get enough stuff, I can get those things. We have it without the stuff which tells us the stuff doesn't is not the means to that end. I've actually had that stuff, and I was miserable and lacking every one of those things. Now, I have much less of those things, and I have all of, I'm much less of the stuff and of all of the things that God promises, and there is no greater prosperity. And David says, look at there is no prosperity from God for a person who is not going to keep the charge, walk in his ways and keep his word. Because at that point, God doesn't want to bless your mess. He wants you to be repentant. And that is one of the of the two things he says here. God really does want to prosper you. When you say, do you believe in prosperity doctrine? I believe that God wants to prosper you. I don't think God wants every, everyone uh, physically rich. He wants us spiritually rich. I think, to be honest, one of the worst things God could do for many people is give them lots of money. Although I'm willing to let God try with me. However, I've got everything I need with him. Everything. I may not have the health or the youth or the strength I've once had or even the stuff I've once had. But inside I'm thriving. And none of those things could add to it nor take it away. Second, verse 4 that the Lord may fulfill the word in which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons heed 
to their way, walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul. He said, you shall not lack a man on the throne, lack a man on the throne of Israel. And understand here are the two things that God's offering. One is he's offering to prosper you. The second is he's offering to purpose you. He says, God is a promise and he has a promise on your life. There is a part of your calling comes with promise of fruit with impact. And God really wants to bless the world through you. And he wants to use you to do that. And in that promise, the only thing that's left is whether or not we're willing to walk in his way to get there. Because God does not want us taking some other route than the one he has ordained and assume somehow we're going to get to the destination that he desires us to be at. Jesus is the only way in scripture to the father. And there's no other way, no matter how much people want to vote on Buddha or Muhammad or anyone else, it really doesn't matter in the end. God has made clear. This is the one way Jesus has made clear. This is the one way. And we should just be thankful. There's a way at all. And, and yet in all of that, we could say, well, I've decided there are other routes to it, but those, no matter how much you decided, it isn't going to make a difference. And God does want to fulfill the promises he's put upon your life. And some of you, maybe even all of you in here, you've already heard God put promises on your life. And you don't even know how in the world God's going to fulfill them. Well, that's God's job to fulfill them. Your job's to obey. Man up. Then David starts to speak about these things that are sort of, if you will, in David's bank account that need to be paid. He says, moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me. I find it interesting that what he says about Joab is what Joab did to him. Don't you find that interesting? That that's David. It isn't like, you know what he did to Abner and what he did to Amasa. Now, no doubt, that's what he did. But yet David says, David took this thing personally. And he says, what he did to the two commanders of the army of Israel, to Abner, the son of Ner, which is always kind of funny. It's like redundant, redundant, saying the same thing. Because Abner means, Ner is my dad. So he's, Ner is my dad, the son of Ner. Yeah, got that. And then we have Amasa, the son of Yitter, whom he killed and shed the blood of war in peacetime and put the blood of the war, put the blood of war in his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals that were on his feet. Therefore, do according to your wisdom and do not let his gray hair go down to the grave in peace. David looks and he goes, listen, we have to take a look. And there's some things that really, there, there are some bills that need to be paid. And Joab is one of them. And it's the first person he goes after. Did you notice? Now, quickly, and again, here it is for reference. In 2 Samuel 2, we'll start with this. Abner was Saul's cousin, David's predecessor. And as he was Saul's cousin, he was also Saul's commander. He was the man in charge. He was the, what would we call the person that heads up the army here? What would be his title? Just a general? Okay, I'm sorry, not just general. general. Okay. Well, he was the general then for Saul's army. But once Saul passed off at the end of 1 Samuel, by 2 Samuel 2, if you think about it, that means that Abner's out of a job. So what does he do? Though David is obviously clearly the choice to become king, he takes Saul's son Ishbosheth. And you know what Ish means? Ish means man. Bosheth, by the way, means of shame. It literally means man of shame. Fun name. And he took Saul's son and he raised him up to be king. And then he wound up fighting with Joab. Now, while he was fighting with Joab, Joab had a couple brothers. 
One of Joab's brothers was a brother named Abishai. And another brother he had named Asahel. Asahel was a fleet-footed man. In other words, this guy was super nimble. He would probably be a great football player. He's quick on his feet. Now, Abner is running from him and he says, Boy, turn around and go find someone else to fight. I'm not the guy you want to mess with. And little gazelle-footed boy behind him is like, pachoink, 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 pachoink. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. Loose paraphrase. And finally, Abner's like, this is your last chance. Oh, no, I'm going to get you. And what happens is Abner just comes to a screeching halt, stops on the dime, and he sticks his spear backwards. But as he sticks his spear backwards, this guy is so quick, it goes right through him. And it wasn't even the sharp end. It was the blunt end of the spear. So ultimately what happens is that Joab's brother was killed in, the, in this fight, in this, this uh, fisticuff. So ultimately, after Ishbosheth, the guy that he raised up after Saul, winds up losing the throne. He winds up dying, by the way. Well, then now Abner realizes he's got no other choice, and he goes and he asks for mercy from King David. He surrenders to David. And as he concedes, that's 2 Samuel 3, as he concedes to David... David actually demonstrates a great mercy and says, you're forgiven. I recognize you were basically trying to keep your job. I recognize all of that. And I'm actually going to go grant you forgiveness. You're welcome to be a part of the, welcome to the family, if you will. And with that, though, everyone seems really happy about it, except Joab. You killed my brother. Prepare to die. That's the idea here. So ultimately what happens as the guy is leaving, and imagine the relief on his head as he's like, oh my goodness, thank you so much. I'm, I should be dead and I'm not a dead man. What happens then is Joab says, oh, hey, one more thing. And he calls him back. And as he calls him back, he stabs him in the guts, stabs him in the stomach and kills him. The man had been forgiven by everyone except Joab. Joab was not interested in forgiving Abner. Well, we might be able to say, well, at least it was his brother. I mean, he killed his brother. So, I mean, not that, you know, when we're raised on movies that, that are all about that kind of thing. But then we have a second guy, Amasa. Amasa was different because Amasa was David's nephew. David had a sister named Abigail. Abigail had a son named Amasa. And when David was king, you know this, David's son, Absalom raised up a coup, a mutiny to try to kill dad and take over the throne. Well, who did he have as, as general? He had Amasa. And then as he had Amasa, 2 Samuel 17 through 20, ultimately we know that once Joab kills Absalom, David declares, he's so upset because this Absalom has been killed, though David told him not to. David wants to fire his commander, Joab. And who does he want to hire in his place? Amasa. He says, all right, Amasa is the guy in charge now. Joab then takes him by the beard as to kiss him and stabs him in the stomach as well. I guess Joab's one move is stab you in the stomach, get you in the guts. That's his move. And it's so, you know, you meet a Joab like that, might I just say, watch yourself, watch you, watch you tell me. But I do find interesting that what he does is he stabs him while trying to kiss him. Now, not 
sensual. The reason is it's, that's the greeting. Uh, Daniel knows a lot about that from France. The, the, uh, the reason I say that is, is that, of course, that prepares us for somebody else's great treason in the New Testament, and that be Judas Iscariot, who in his kiss betrayed Jesus. And if you will, I think the biggest difference is, is that Judas stabbed him in the back, stabbed Jesus in the back, if you will, while Amasa just gets stabbed in the front. But now this is what we have now. Now it is not an issue of uh, Job's brother being killed. Now it's just an issue that Job was getting fired because he killed David's son. And we're interesting. So with that, he just kind of gets rid of the competition. And listen, here's the bottom line, is that Joab refused to forgive whom the king forgave. That's the bottom line. In both of the cases, the king granted forgiveness, but Joab wasn't interested in it. And let me ask you something, because we'll get to that even more next week, God willing, is that what about us? Are we in that place where we look and we go, well, God would forgive him, but I'm not God. Are we angry that God would forgive someone? Well, then to be honest, what kind of fit is the bad guy in this story? That's Joab. So in both of the cases, what David says, and it's kind of flowery, but for a songwriter, it makes sense. He's got, in essence, it's like this. He's got the blood, uh, he's got the blood of war on his vacation or his holiday clothes. You know, he's got his sandals on, his belt is around his waist. It isn't like he's girded for a fight. It's in essence, he's kind of like he's got his street clothes on, but they're covered in blood because this wasn't a time of war. This was not a time to fight. This was a time instead of forgiveness and restoration. This was a time of celebrating and you've destroyed the time of celebrating because you will not forgive. And David says, if you're going to be a man, there's some house cleaning you're going to do. And part of it is we need to we need to settle accounts here with this guy. Now it isn't all that David's just like he's like the Godfather. And he's like, okay, no, here's who else you have to kill. Because in verse seven we read that he also wants to make sure that the kindness of others has been rewarded as well. It says, but show kindness to the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For so they came with me, or came to me, I'm sorry, when I fled from Absalom. Brother, that's Second Samuel 17, by the way. If you remember, David leaves the house quite in a hurry, barefoot and crying, heads over the Mount of Olives. And as he does, because his son's there trying to kill everyone, certainly David, and David, as he's fleeing, is met by this elderly man who's 80 years old. And as he's met with this man who's 80 years old and he shows up with this big buffet and he says, man, I, I can tell you guys could really use some help. So here, uh, just take this stuff. Uh, ultimately, when David is restored by 2 Samuel 19, he says, why don't you cross over the Jordan with me? Come on, you know, I've got my kingdom back. I've got a really, you know, nice place in Buckingham Palace. I really think we've got a sweet bed for you. I mean, you're 80, it's a cool thing. And the guy's like, look it, that's for young guys. I'm 80. He goes, I can't taste things the way I used to taste them. So what difference does a great buffet mean to me? Now, I'm not looking forward to those days, and I'm going to go down fighting on that one. Let me tell you what. Brazilian barbecue is going to be Brazilian barbecue until I can't eat. Anyways, uh, you know, and, you know, it's like, and look at this song thing. I can't even hear like I used to hear. So it isn't like I can get my boogie on, you know, because I'm trying to pick words that would be older, you know. You know, it's like, you know, at this point, you know, I ain't got no boogie anymore. You know, it's like, you know, I'm just happy to walk. You know, let me just go back to where I came and die. He goes, but would you take this guy? He turns out to be a member of his family. He goes, please take this guy instead. 
And so what David says is, well, I mean, assumedly by this point, Barzillai has probably passed on. And so he's like, look, at, let's show kindness to his family. Will you make sure that that family's taken care of for the kindness of their dad? I do think that's really, really cool. But not everyone gets that kind of blessing. He goes, oh, and there's this other guy too. This other guy? Well, you probably remember Shemai. Shemai, the son of Gera. A Benjamite of Bahurim who cursed me with a malicious curse in the day that I went to Mahanaim. But he came down and meet me at the Jordan. Isn't that wonderful? That's what I needed was this guy. He is the opposite of a cheerleader. He's like a curse leader. Kill David. David, you're a jerk. You should die. That's kind of the idea. You know, give me an S. Give me an I. Give me an N. You're a sinner. You're guilty. And he says, I swore by the Lord that I will not put you to death by the sword. But now listen, he doesn't just say, just kill the kid. He says, now, therefore, don't hold him guiltless. You're a wise man. You know what you ought to do. Bring his gray hair down to the grave of blood. He knows this is going to happen. Now, I want to remind you, this is before Dave, uh, Solomon has this amazing encounter with God in Second Kings. I'm sorry, First Kings 3, where God's going to say, what do you want? And he's going to go, I want wisdom. It's interesting because David says, notice in verse 9, you're already wise, kid. And you may be a teenager, but you are wise beyond your years. And I can't help but think of other people. I always think of as infinitely older than they look because they're just wise in their choices. And he's like, look at your wise. You know what to do in this situation. Now, for what it's worth, Second Samuel 16 is this guy. He shows up and it's interesting because what he's saying is God's getting you back. God's getting you back for what you've done to my, you know, to my family because he was of the family of Saul. You know, God's getting you back for all of that, you bloodthirsty man. The Lord's delivered the kingdom into the hand of your son. Ha, 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 you rogue. And you realize this is the voice of condemnation throwing your past in your face. As David went along the road, this guy, can, and by the way, this guy followed him. He followed David screaming, kicking up dust and throwing rocks. Finally, David's commander, one of David's commanders, Abishai turns and he goes, you know what? Give me a shot at the guy. I won't have to try twice. One good swing. Just one. Just give me one swing, please. One swing. And this guy is done. And this will be done. You won't have to hear him anymore. When his head comes off of his body, the cursing will stop. Watch. Trust me. I'll make it work. And David looks and goes, what are you doing? That's not what I want to do here. And then when David is restored back after Solomon, after Absalom's death, they're like, let's kill the guy now. The guy beelines over to David and throws himself down before David. He's like, David, I, I'm sorry. I was just, I was really, I was having a bad day. And David's like, you were having a bad day. You know, and, and in all of that, again, at that point, Abishai says, well, how about now? Let's put him to death now. And David's like, oh, what have I to do with you, sons of Zuriah? that you should be adversaries to me on this day. You're the opposite of my heart at this moment. Should any man be put to death today? Don't you know that I'm king over Israel again? Isn't that enough? And yet, David knows this man is going to be trouble unless he's dealt with. So there were three specific people we see here. There was this man, if you will, who was the prince of vengeance, if you think about it of unforgiveness, that's Joab. And then you have this man who's a person of great kindness, and that's Barzillai. And then you have a guy who basically lives to condemn and throw your past in your face. And David says these things need to be dealt with. 
And they're going to need to be dealt with in every one of us. And we'll see that even more so next week. So then David, and I love the term God used. It doesn't say David croaked or even breathed his last. It said David rested. And I like that. It seems like David's life had been won by this point where it was just a lot of stuff to carry. There was a lot of his past to carry. There were a lot of mistakes staring him in the face. There's a lot of grief and he looks at his children and he doesn't see them walking with the Lord like he wished they were. And God's like, it's time to just give you rest, boy. So David rested with his fathers when he was buried in the city of David. Now David had reigned. by the, the period in which David reigned was 40 years. Seven years he reigned in Hebron. And in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years. And then Solomon's throne will be established. Look at Somewhere down the line, we move from following people that we trust walk with the Lord to really taking possession of our own unique walk with the Lord. And at that point, some things become really clear or start to become really clear. Like the fact that your calling is going to be unique to you, bespoke to you. It will not be like the people you've trusted and and sat under and served under. You're going to start developing your own thing. Sooner or later, you got to go Karate Kid Part 3, you know, where you got to develop your own special style, your own special things. You can't just wax on, wax off all the time. Hey, thanks for smiling. That tells me that this, somehow that metaphor still works. Uh, you know, and the point of it is somewhere down the line, it's got to be your thing. Yours in the Lord. And that's where David is with this boy, Solomon. By the way, I remind you, when Solomon was born, God called him Yedidia. We might say Jedidiah. But Yedidia means loved by God. God looked and he said, now that boy, I love by, I, I love, not that he doesn't love others, but there was something about Solomon that you could see maybe the passion of his father was there. Something that it just like, he just reminded him of this, of this man who was after his own heart, David, his father. And I could see God just looking and going, ah, I just love this kid. And you know, I mean, how many times do you read that David is personally visited by God? We have Nathan that visits David. You know, we have, we have Gad that, that sits and, and visits David Gad as well as a prophet. But Solomon, God does house calls with this boy and he's going to do a next chapter. And let me ask you, there's a season before these kings, I remind you, the season of Judges, where there was that horrible cycle of every time they were blessed, they turned their back on God till they got back into bondage and they'd cry out to God and finally the whole thing would start over. And it's like there's a, let's be honest, that is a throne unestablished. Is that where your life is right now with the Lord? Is he your God or just God? Is he the Lord or is he just God? But he needs to be the Lord your God. And let me say this as we go to prayer. Commit. Commit to those things that you know are of the Lord. Commit to guarding the charge God has placed on your life. If you're like, I don't know what that is yet, well then let me say, stay in fellowship, stay in the word, stay in prayer, and stay available. The rest is going to happen. It's his job to do it anyways. You're like, I don't get it yet. We well, don't have to get it yet. It's his to give. He knows when to give it. But he's already got that call on your life. And if that's, if you have to wait 25 years, if the Lord tarries, 
like Abraham might have for a son, if you will, Abraham had to for a son. If you had to wait over a hundred years for the boat that you're building for people to finally get on it so you can get out. The bottom line is this, God knows and time is not, an, is not a threat to him. But it is time to commit and let's face it, challenges and time are going to be constant in our face and they're going to prove whether we're really committed or not with our whole heart, not just half-hearted, not just half-minded, but with our souls and with our beings, we commit and we say, God, I'm all yours. Guard your charge and get up and walk and be available as you walk in his ways. Walking in his ways, you're walking available to any time he blows the trumpet and says, all right, Bruins, this one, share Jesus with this one. And I love hearing those stories. And guard his word. And when you guard his word and someone says, do you really believe? And you know it's what the Bible says. Don't back down. Truth in love, but truth just the same. And if you think they're going to think you're a nutter, at least they'll respect you for being a nutter with commitment. And a nutter with commitment is more respected than a person who has is a jellyfish because they're just busy trying to fit in with everyone else. And we'll deal with these issues about the establishing the, fr- the throne next week. But I think that's enough even right now to focus on because let's face it, isn't this what Jesus did? He committed to his calling. He, I mean, let's face it, one sin would have disqualified him from being our sacrifice. Talk about guarding the call. It's exactly the point. And as he guards the call, that's where we are with this. And dying on a cross shows the element of, of the level of his commitment because even to the death on the cross, taking on the form of a man and being obedient to death on the cross, clearly there was nothing that was going to change his commitment. And it tells us in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Oh, beloved, as we go to prayer, let God so move in our hearts tonight, so move that we would man up as God has called us to. Will you pray with me, please? I want to thank you, Lord, for the last wishes of a dying father that was after your own heart and looks at his son to take the mantle and doesn't say just, get more wealth, expand this kingdom, but first, be a man, step it up, and guard the charge that's placed upon you. Jesus, I want to thank you that for the joy set before you, you endured the cross, scorning at shame. Thank you that we could be that joy set before you. Your love for us, your desire for us was so com- so committed, so full of conviction that when the enemy would charge you with turning bread to st- or stones to bread after 40 days of not eating and you know you're at a critical situation physically that you would not take what the Father hadn't given you. And when the kingdoms that are full of people were offered to you, if you were willing to, to, to bow to the enemy, you refused. Because you knew that would be at best a temporary win from a liar. And not the eternal adoption that we get now with you. And when you were offered to throw yourself down, to show off, to be caught by angels as Psalm 91 would proclaim so that people would clearly see you as the Messiah, but a Messiah carried by angels versus a Messiah hanging on a cross. You refused 
because the strength of your conviction and the power of your commitment carried you beyond that. And I want to thank you for dying on that cross for our sins, for the joy that was set before you, scorning its shame. And having the promise within that, the promise that you would rise on the third day according to Scripture and offer new life to us. And I thank you for paying for all of our guilt, all of our shame, and offering us brand new life. And in doing so, thank you that we could embrace that new life. And in that, we could walk in a prosperity that is beyond material possessions, but of the peace and the love and the joy and the kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those things, Lord, that you promise are very fruit of your spirit being planted within us. The very things that this world is hoping the things of this world would give them, but can't. And I want to thank you that you've offered to prosper us in where we go and wherever we go and whatever we do for the impact of eternity and for the blessing of our King. And that the promises you've laid upon us will be fulfilled as you've promised as we guard your calling, walk in your ways, and guard your word as you've ordained for us to. So Father, tonight, Though we may be willing in our spirit, we confess to you our flesh is weak. So strengthen, Lord, those convictions and those commitments by the power of the spirit you've placed within us. Strengthen our convictions, we pray, that we would walk with you as you've ordained. Thank you, Jesus, for being our Lord and Savior. Thank you for being the Lord, our God, almighty, as been promised in Isaiah. And we just want you to know we are yours. So Lord, have your way, we pray. Jesus, in your name. Amen.